Um, good morning. You guys can turn in your Bible to Matthew 26. We are moving right along in the book of Matthew. It, just before we read together, just in way of review, just last week, I want to remind us as we talked about the end of chapter 25 and the, the parable of the goats and the sheep, Jesus made it very clear that every person ever created would stand before God one day. It's not, it's not an if, it's a when. Okay? Um, and along with that, he talked about caring for the least of these. And that helps us to remember that if we don't ever bear the fruit of practical love and care towards Christians and non-Christians, then our faith is, according to James chapter 2, our faith is dead. Our faith is worthless. It's meaningless. To be clear, though, good works are not the cause of salvation. They are the effect of salvation. So God saves and good works come out of that saving relationship with the Father. The core message at its base of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 is that God's people will actively serve others. God's people will actively love others. This is the fruit of a heart that has been changed by Christ. And it's the fundamental way that we wait for him well. Now, the scene shifts a bit in chapter 26. Matthew enters in his narrative of it. He enters like this new phase. Okay, they're familiar events to you guys, I'm sure. And they all are Jesus' path to the cross. Right, that's, that's where we start now. And it's appropriate that we're moving into the Easter spring season because we're, we're moving to the cross in Matthew 26. Now, the title of my talk today, you can see, is the beginning of the middle. That might seem a little confusing, so let me try to explain a little bit. When we start to read here in verse 1, we're going to see that this is sort of the beginning of the end for Jesus. It's the beginning of the end for his time on earth. And although the pieces have been falling into place ever since the beginning of, of the world, ever since creation, things seem to shift into almost a higher gear now. All these things start to fall into place even quicker. So let me just kind of give an overview just briefly. Here's where we're going with all of this. In this chapter, as we'll see, the plot to kill Jesus is devised. It's thought up and put into motion. Then his betrayer emerges from the background. The Lord's Supper is instituted and explained. The hearts of the disciples are laid bare in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus submits to the will of his Father. Soon after that, he will be arrested, tried, tortured, and killed. It starts here. In Matthew 26, verse 1. But the story of Jesus doesn't just end at the cross, as we know, because he is alive today. Praise the Lord. We really can't call it the beginning of the end because Jesus lives forever. John 1, 1 says that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was alive then and He will be alive forevermore. So we can't call it the beginning of the end. So the beginning of the middle was the best I could come up with because I'm not a very smart guy. Um, beginning of the middle. That's where we're, that's where we're at. And, and honestly, that's where we're living 
Like that's the period that we're in now. We're in the middle. We're in that waiting period. And we've talked about that before. Um, remember, though, I, I just want to keep this in mind as we talk about these events from history. Keep in mind, though, that these are connected very definitely with what Jesus has already said about being ready. Being ready. Don't disconnect these from the parable of the bridesmaids and the wicked servant. Like, be ready. He's coming. We don't know when, but he is. So be ready. Jesus' death on the cross is the climax of Matthew's gospel. It's That's the high point. That's where things come to a head. And everything that we've read so far and studied so far in the book of Matthew for over a year has been leading up to this point. We're almost there. Matthew's account of all of this coincides with the sequence of events of the history of the world in that the cross of Christ is the centerpiece of history. Like that is where everything changed. David Platt calls this the Mount Everest of the biblical landscape. The cross is the Mount Everest of the biblical landscape. Charles Spurgeon refers to the events on the cross as a subject that no man can rightly expound. And I I would tend to agree with him. And yet, try we must, right? Because eternity is wrapped up in what happens on the cross. Eternity for every man and every woman is bound up in this. Thankfully, though, it's not our human wisdom that allows us the ability to be able to understand what God would have for us in this. His Spirit makes us alive together with Him. Ephesians 2 says, alive together with Him. Gives light to our darkened minds. And in reality, removes that veil that allows us to see clearly. This is a work of the Spirit. It's not any eloquence on my part, and it's not any smarts on your part. It's a work of the Spirit. So let's get into the text. Let's read this morning, Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to make a delivery real quick. I forgot. Matthew 26, verse 1. Here we go. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it out on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has just done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial." Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. From that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, 
we do ask that a work of the Spirit would take place this morning. As Maddie already prayed, Lord, that you would open our ears and our eyes to the truth that you have in this text. We thank you for your word that is alive. It cuts to the very heart of us, to the very soul. Lord, change the things in me that you need to change. Change the things in my brothers and sisters that you need to change. And we pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So, right after Jesus finished explaining to the disciples how and why they should be ready and willing to wait, he brings up his death again. He says, in just a couple of days, the Passover is coming, and then I'm going to be delivered over to be killed. Now, this is really the fourth time that Jesus has talked about his death. And I don't think the disciples really understood it yet. I just don't think they did. They didn't have any category for this in their mind. They saw him doing all of these these wonderful, miraculous things, and surely they thought, he's going to live forever. He's our king. He's going to be around all the time. And what a great thing it would have been for them. Had he, could he do that? I'm sure they were thinking. But even though it was the fourth time, now Jesus puts a time frame on it. Right? He says it's the Passover, and immediately then things are going to be set in motion. It's, it's going down. It's going to happen um, in just a few days. At the very same time, we're told that the religious leaders gathered together to try to do what? Figure out a way to kill Jesus. They had had enough. They had had, they'd heard enough. Um, they'd seen enough. They were done with this troublemaker, this rabble rouser. They couldn't take his, his piercing comments anymore. And they couldn't take his unusual teachings. They were finally going to do something permanent about it. That's what they thought. That's what their plan was. But as we're told, they just couldn't go up and arrest him in broad daylight, right? It was the annual feast of the Passover. So here in, in, in town, there were thousands of extra people that had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. You guys know what the Passover is. We're going to talk about it more next week when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper in chapter 26. But this is that celebration where is the, the Israelites, the Jews, get together and remember and praise God for their deliverance from Egypt from bondage and captivity. That's the Passover event that happened right before they were sent out from Egypt. And we're going to talk about it more next next week. So there were all these extra people, thousands of extra people, and guess what? They liked Jesus. So the religious leaders said, no, we can't just go arrest him. We need to be a little more, as Matthew puts, a little more stealthy in this. Because they were afraid. Look at verse 5. Chapter 26, verse 5. It says that they were afraid of an uproar. These people hated Jesus, but they feared the people more. They really feared the people. Think about how much they cared about what people thought of them. Think back to Matthew chapter 6. There's some things listed in your notes there. They prayed so loudly that everyone would hear them like they'd stand up on things so that they could be above, so that everyone could hear them praying these wonderfully long, eloquent prayers and that people would think highly of them. Notice their religiosity. They would um, 
Jesus says, don't blow a trumpet when you give. So we can infer that they would do something like blowing a trumpet or announcing what they're putting into the offering plate as they give. They would make it known so that people knew how generous they were being. They intentionally looked gloomy when they fasted so that people would say, oh, what's wrong? Why do you look that way? And that they could then boast in fasting. Do you know what kind of a mindset it is? to do all of these things as appearances for other people to see. It's called the fear of man. It's called the fear of man. And these religious leaders were stuck in it. The reality is they cared more about what other people thought of them than what God thought of them. And that was the problem. But look at how this plays out in the story today. They couldn't stand sharing the spotlight. So they began formulating this stealthy plan to deal with Jesus for good. The fear of man caused them to do this. It caused them to dream up a murder plan. The fear of man caused the religious leaders to dream up a murder plan. They would rather, listen to this, they would rather kill an innocent man than entertain the thought that they might be wrong. Yikes. Literally, the religious leaders buried the truth to try to retain their reputation. Literally, they buried the truth. This problem exists in droves today, brothers and sisters. This problem exists in my heart today. I'm, and, and you're probably no different, but I'm more likely to change something about myself because of how it appears to someone else than I am to change something about myself because God tells me to. So the question that we need to ask is, are we guilty of fearing man more than God? Are you so worried about what other people think that you're willing to bury the truth in order to maintain a lie? The religious leaders would have rather committed murder than to deal with their own sin. And you know what? When I justify my sin, I do the same thing. When you justify your sin, you do the same thing. You would rather bury an innocent man than deal with your sin. And I'm the same way. The, the religious leaders were in a pickle though. They had to either face up to what Jesus was saying about them or double down and find a way to silence him, to cover it up. We're faced with similar options today. My encouragement would be don't fall for the same trap. Don't be a slave to man. Don't be a slave to the fear of man, I should say. Don't double down and cover sin up. That's not what we're called to do. That's not who we're called to be. Instead, we're called to expose our sin to the light. The gospel then can set us free. And you know how we do this? We do this, we expose our sin to the light just by being real about what we've done parents you guys we get this we oftentimes we know what one of our kids has done wrong before they know we know you know what i mean and it would be so much easier if they were just to fess up and admit and come to us and tell the truth kids you may be thinking you've heard this before um that's good you should because it it will go better for you if you tell the truth instead of trying to double down and cover the lie and then you've got to cover that lie. And then it snowballs and you're stuck. 
But we do this often. And the thing we so often forget is that God, despite knowing our sin, still waits patiently for us to come to Him. It's, it's unreal. He's waiting patiently for us to turn to Him. Now, we don't know when the end will be. But when it's here, it's going to be too late to change your mind about Christ. Confess your sin to God today. Repent and be united to Jesus today and follow Him. The religious leaders, they chose poorly here. And so they decided to try and find a way to murder an innocent man without losing esteem and without losing influence. And the solution to their problem surfaces, actually, in verse 14. Judas. You guys know the name? For centuries, the name Judas has been tied to betrayer, backstabber, that sort of a thing. I don't know a single person named Judas. Maybe you do. I don't know. Um, it's, it's not a name that most people would think very highly of, but the religious leaders found their guy. Um, they found someone who was close enough to betray Jesus but far enough from Jesus to actually betray him. You see what I mean? He was in the inner circle, but not really in the inner circle. But they needed an inside man, and they, they had someone volunteer for even less than they imagined, probably. And so Judas sold out the Savior for a measly 30 pieces of silver. Now, I say measly 30 pieces of silver, because it was the cost of a man's life here. But in reality, 30 pieces of silver, as best as I could understand, was about in that time worth four months' wages. So not a whole lot to sneeze at. Um, But we're going to see in the next chapter, and especially the beginning of chapter 27, that the story of Judas, his story, kind of takes an unusual turn that we'll get to later on. Here, though, as it turns out, the religious leaders found someone who loved money as much as they did. Jesus had just, has just gotten done talking and using several parables that addressed what we're supposed to do with what we have, right? Chapter 25, we talked about the talents. Um, we talked about the bridesmaids. So the, the wise bridesmaids were the five who came prepared. They had extra oil for their lamps. They used what they had well. The wicked servant who was given one talent buried it in the sand and did not use it well. The faithful followers of Christ used what they had been given to love and serve others. At the end of chapter 25, they served the least of these. The unfaithful in that same story saw the needs of the people, but did what? Ignored them. And they were dealt with harshly. Here's how this ties in to our story today with Judas. Something Jesus has already laid the foundation and groundwork for back in earlier chapters of Matthew. It's this. You cannot serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. Only one will get your real, true devotion. If you love money and what it can buy more than you love everything else, then in essence, you hate God. Now, I know that that sounds harsh, and it may not often look like hate on the outside, but just flip back to Matthew twenty-four or 6, 24 for a second. 
Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you love money more than God, you hate God. And the hatred of God in that way will mark you, and you will be marked by it. It follows you everywhere. That kind of rejection and betrayal of the Savior begins to define you. And I want us to see that just briefly. Look at how Judas, I think I've got these scriptures in your notes. Look at how Judas is described and talked about in the Gospels, both in Matthew and John. It says, Simon the Zealot, listing the disciples, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Judas, who would betray him, answered. In Mark 3, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, and Judas the son of James and Judas and Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor who was about to betray him who was going to betray him who betrayed him all of these things are defining who Judas was in the gospels what a way to be remembered instead of being someone who guided people to the savior Judas became one who guided those to arrest Jesus See the difference there? So we have to turn this and say, well, what's the testimony of my life going to be? What, what's the testimony of how I spend my money, how I use what God has given me? What's that testimony going to be? Will it be clear to others that I used what God had given me to lead people to Jesus? Or will it be revealed that I surrendered to the idols of this material world and drew people away from Jesus? We've said this before, but it's still true. What you do with what you have matters. It's important. And it matters and is important for all of eternity. The end of chapter 25 made that real clear. You use what you have to serve and love others. That's an evidence of real salvation. Look back at chapter 24, verse 6. This is where we kind of move back. So we've talked about Judas. We'll talk about him more. But I want to focus and end with the middle ground here. Matthew 26, verse 6. He starts talking about a woman who came with this alabaster jar and an expensive ointment, and she breaks it and pours it on Jesus while everyone was watching. Right in the middle of this scene, She just comes in and does this. Now, the book of John in chapter 12 identifies this woman as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. You've you've heard her before. We have so much to learn from this precious lady. How many of us would have done what she did? I mean, I I was convicted of that question this week as I was preparing for today. How many of us would have done what she did or how many of us would have been too self-conscious too afraid of what others would think to the point where we probably wouldn't have done anything at all i've heard it said well my relationship with jesus is a private thing or well i you know i couldn't i couldn't express my love for god in public in that way fill in the blank 
brothers and sisters, your relationship with God is, is absolutely personal, but it's never private. It's never private. You were bought with a price, Scripture says. You are not your own, it says. We bear the mark of Christ, and we have only to boast in the cross. And when people look at Christians, the literal term meaning of Christian is little Christ. When people look at Christians, at you, if you call yourself a Christian, aren't you supposed to look like Jesus? Aren't we supposed to be doing the things that he would have done? For Mary, it didn't matter who was watching, what was going on. She was going to show love to her Lord. Regardless of the consequences or the ridicule, she was going to worship, man. It didn't matter. But I think, I think too, knowing that we know this is Mary, I think she knew Jesus well enough to know what kind of response she was going to get, though. She had history with, with Jesus. After all, he had just raised, if you look back a couple chapters in the book of John from chapter 12, Jesus had just raised Lazarus, her brother, from the dead. Uh, she had very good reason to show love and devotion to that kind of a person. And she came to anoint him as her king. Now we're told that the value of what Mary put on Jesus was 300 denarii. Um, about a year's wage. Think about that. Think about how much money you make in a year. That in, in just a matter of seconds, it's gone. It's poured out. It's gone. And yet... Man, Mary didn't hesitate, did she? We don't see that at all. We don't see any kind of hesitation. In fact, Matthew reports that she poured this expensive oil all over Jesus' head. And the book of John reports that that Mary poured this on Jesus' feet. So what do we learn from these accounts? The amount of oil that she used was enough to go from the head to the foot. That's a lot. But you think about a year's wages. Look at what else she did, though. She wiped Jesus' hair with her, wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. That's a, that's a telling part of this story that I don't want us to miss. Her, think about wiping feet. You guys have probably heard this before when Jesus uh, washes the disciples' feet. That job of washing people's feet was usually reserved for kind of the low man on the totem pole. Um, They didn't have shoes like we have. They wore sandals. Their feet, their roads were dusty. Their feet were very dirty. And when they go into a house, one of the lowly slaves would come and they would wash the feet of the guests. But they usually used a washcloth. Mary does a very similar thing, but she uses her hair the use of her own hair was, I, I can't see it any other way, but just this, this act of incredible humility and intense devotion for Jesus. And yet, even in this wonderful picture of worship, uninhibited by other things, we see the love of money rear its ugly head again. We know from John chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, that 
he kind of narrows it down. In Matthew, the account says the disciples were frustrated and said, why didn't you, why did you waste this? The book of John kind of narrows this down and identifies Judas as the one who first gets upset. It was Judas who pointed out the value of the ointment and accosted Mary for what she used it for. But we also find out from John chapter 12 that Judas didn't really care about the poor, did he? It says that he would actually take money from the money bag that he took care of for the disciples. He would use it for himself. He was serving his master, the one who had a tight hold on him. The religious leaders and Judas loved money, feared men, and hated Jesus. And I'm afraid that this formula is lived out before our eyes more often than we realize. The love of money often looks practical, doesn't it? The fear of men can hide behind pretty masks. As one author put it, the Bible is clear. If you hate Jesus, love money, and fear men, you become a card-carrying member of the crowd who crucified the author of life. These, These are difficult things to wrestle with. I understand. So I want us just to pause for a moment and let it sit. But I want us to look and compare Judas and Mary for just a second as we close. I think there's some comparisons here that we can learn an awful lot from. What was Judas's purpose in following Jesus? Personal gain, right? What was Mary's purpose in following Jesus? Because she really loved him. Judas's care for the poor, and I'll put care in air quotes, um, care for the poor was really just this outward act to hide his selfishness and greed. Mary's care for Jesus came from deep humility and devotion for him. Most importantly, and this just hit me this week, look at where they each place the most value when mary anointed jesus with the oil how much was that worth a year's wages when judas sold out jesus how much did he sell him for four months wages this highlights a truth that i think we need to be reminded of what we value most is most precious to us I mean, Jesus said this a different way when he said, uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But what we value the most is what's most precious to us. Oftentimes, the things that we value the most should be precious to us. Family, children, the things that God has given us. And yet so often, things get out of order in our lives. What we value most is most precious to us. If we value money and all the things that it can do for us, all the things that we can get with us, then guess what? Money is what's most precious to us. If we value what people think of us and change how we act because of it, then guess what? Other people's opinions are what is most precious to us. But if we value Jesus and our relationship with him, then he will be what's most precious to us. And we will worship him in ways 
that not everyone might understand. Jesus' response in all of this was pretty simple, very short, very easy, but it might not quite be what we expect. He says, what are you bothering her for? What she's done is a beautiful thing. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say it was a beautiful thing? Well, without even knowing it, Mary was preparing Jesus' body for what was to come. And Jesus points this out. This act of Mary was a foreshadowing of his burial, of his death and his burial. She poured this oil, all of it, I think it said it was a pound's worth, um, all of this oil on his head. And it ran down, Jesus probably had a beard, um, and it ran down his beard, and it dripped from his beard, think about this, onto his cloak, and it dripped from his cloak down to his feet. Uh, John, I love how he adds to this, he says that the fragrance of the oil filled the house. Uh, my wife diffuses oil in our house, essential oils sometimes. And so I can kind of picture this a little bit, but this was like a ton of it, just dripping, covering the Savior. I think days, days later when he's on the cross or going to the cross and these same garments have been pulled from him, I wonder if they still smelled. So, in his response, Jesus also says something that uh, that I want to I want to point out. I want to talk about because I think this is misunderstood in in Christian culture today. Um, Jesus says this. So after he says, you know, stop. Stop bothering Mary. She did an incredible thing. He says, you always have the poor with me, with you, but you will not always have me with you. So I think we understand this or misunderstand this text as like this prophecy about the inevitability of poverty. What's well, always going to be there. Um, it's almost like we picture Jesus sort of like shrugging his shoulders and saying, well, you're always going to have the poor with you. So don't get too worked up over poverty. Uh, I think we need to be clear here. Jesus is not saying that ministry to the poor is pointless or ineffective, especially not when we think back to the end of chapter 25, right? What we do for the least of these has huge implications for our relationship with Jesus. And also remember where Jesus is right now. Look back at the beginning of the chapter. Where is he? He's in the house of a leper, former leper probably, an outcast. These guys were kicked out outside the gates of the town. Jesus is now in the home of someone who would have looked, been looked down on by everyone else. But he's there. Jesus is saying that his disciples, those who follow him, they're always going to be in close proximity to the poor because they're always going to be doing the same things that he did. Think about what Jesus did. He was always rubbing shoulders with the least of these, with the poor and the outcasts, the broken and the hurting. Followers of Jesus are going to be doing ministry in hard places, but we're going to do it. We're going to go into those hard places and we're going to lift up the hurting and we're going to 
heal what we can. And so the question then becomes, why is it that so many churchy people avoid rubbing shoulders with the downtrodden and the outcast and the poor and the needy? Can it truly, as the book of John says, can it truly be said of us that we will always have the poor with us? Not just like with us in this arbitrary group of people out there, but with us like our friends, our neighbors, those who we spend a lot of time with. Can we really say that we're close enough to the poor, that we can do good to them whenever we want. That's how John puts it in his record of this. We can't do it whenever we want if we're never around them. Jesus' words challenge us here to be present in the places of greatest need. And I think, I think some Christians do this really well. I can think of, just, I can think of a, several right off the bat, members of our church here. Um, and other Christians that I know. You guys do this really well. There's always room to be better. Jesus says you will be present in the places of greatest need. But notice something. Even good ministry can get in the way of real worship if we let it. Judas, of course, we know his motivation, but what he said sounded good, didn't it? You shouldn't have wasted that. You could have, think about how much money you could have sent to buy food for the poor. That looks real practical sometimes, but sometimes it gets in the way of real worship. And so we need to be discerning. Jesus has just been teaching that caring for the least of these is a huge evidence that someone is genuinely saved and knows the Father. But sometimes God wants the best and most beautiful displays of our love and devotion for Him alone. As we magnify His worth by our gifts, He receives the glory. Here in this moment with Mary, it was absolutely right for her to do what she did. It was absolutely right for her to pour out such an extravagant gift. And so the questions that I want us to think through as we close this part of the service today are these. What gifts do you have to pour out before the king? What gifts? We know he's given us talents. Every person in the body of Christ has been given a gift or gifts. We know that we have something to offer, but what is it? that we have to pour out on the king today? And what are we holding back because we're bound up by the fear of men? What are we not able to do because we're in bondage to the love of money? Magnifying Christ with your very best is always an appropriate act for a Christian. In fact, Faith, go ahead to the next slide. I, wanna, I want us to see this together. Sometimes reading it, Helps it to sink in. Magnifying Christ with your very best is always an appropriate act. Always an appropriate act for a Christian. So my prayer is that we have this mindset as we go out of this place today. That Jesus deserves my very best. Jesus deserves your very best. So what is it that we have 
that we have not given to him that he deserves. Maddie's going to come up with Jordan and they're going to lead us in a couple more songs to sing as we reflect on this very thing. And so as, as you guys go ahead and come on up, as we sing today, please think through these questions. What gifts do we have to pour out before the king? And what am I not pouring out because I'm bound up to the fear of men? What am I not giving because I'm bound up to the love of money? These things hide under the surface sometimes. So I want to pray, lead us in prayer, and ask God to reveal those parts of our hearts so that we can repent of them. Let's pray. Lord, this story at its core is about worship. And yet, even in this, even in that act, there are things that would inhibit our worship. And on the surface, surface they seem like, like good things, like helping people, like giving what we have. And Lord, those are good things. But Father, so often in my heart, I can put up this, this mask of spirituality and make it through another worship service with no one knowing what's going on in my heart. And I know that my brothers and sisters do the same. So Lord, as a church, as your people, those who you have called out to be different, Lord, make us different in this. Free us from the bondage of what other people think of us. Help us to be so caught up in what you think of us that that other stuff just melts away. And Lord, help us not to fall into the trap of the love of money. God, help us to use what we have for your glory. And as we sing now, as we think through these things, Heavenly Father, my prayer genuinely is that we would recognize and understand what the very best that you deserve is from us and that we would pour it out before you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.